my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. On this week's show, we're going to talk about moms. Well, that's not quite right. We're going to talk about mothers. No. We're going to talk about motherhood. Hmm. If, like me, you're not a mother, perhaps you think this is something you don't need to concern yourself with. I would urge you to consider the fact that the idea of motherhood blankets our culture for everyone. That idea affects how you feel about your own status as a mother or as a not-mother. It affects how you feel about your own mother. It affects how you see other people who are mothers or not mothers. Guiding us through this discussion is Liz Lenz, who was on the show before to talk about another memoir come piece of social criticism, Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in middle America. Today, we're talking about her latest book, Belabored, A Vindication of the Rights of Pregnant Women. And she is coming right up. With Friends Like These is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp wants to know what interferes with your happiness. And dear listeners, that makes me laugh every time I come across it because BetterHelp is great. I love their sponsor. And we just don't have time for a list of things that interfere with my happiness. Not here in January of the year of our Lord, 2021. I'm guessing it's the same for you. If there is a person out there who doesn't need or want counseling, I doff my cap to you. If you're one of the many that do want to talk to someone about the hell year, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment, making it so convenient you can begin communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can send a message to your counselor anytime and you get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room or really anywhere besides your bed if you want. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial help is available. There's a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. Licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, sex, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. Anything you share is confidential. 
You can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They're recruiting counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. You deserve help. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com friends. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash friends. Liz, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me back. Well, I'm excited to talk about this book, which mines a different part of your life. The particular one you've commodified in this book um, is motherhood. Uh, you are a mother. I am. I have two kids, nine and seven. And what made you want to write this? Back when my youngest was a tiny baby, I was struggling to work um, and be a parent and um, find that space for myself. And I uh, kind of uh, forced myself to get away and go to a writing conference, the Tin House Writers uh, Workshop. And I remember going there and hearing Maggie Nelson say something that has always stuck with me. And she said that every story is the story of a body. And um, that... And and so it was like, right, I heard her say that. And right around then I was writing about, um, I was writing about motherhood for Jezebel in a less personal way. And so, I mean, there's the practical way this developed into a book, but the reason I was writing about it is because, you know, our stories are the stories of our body. And I wanted to write something else about motherhood. I wanted to write I wanted to not write like, oh, it's such a blessing and I like nursing while the birds chirp or, you know, or or even the more negative stuff, which is, you know, these are all fine and valid. I know I'm being sarcastic, but like they're all wonderful books, which I have enjoyed. But I wanted to carve a more political space for it because our bodies are politicized. And I wanted to delve into that dissonance and say, wait a minute, like, wait a minute. This is not, this is not just like a holy goddess-like experience. Like this is a political space and we need to talk about what it really means to be a mother in America. One of the things I noticed about your book, and I, I think it's um, a kind of dance that you do that I really appreciate, is that the book is about liminal spaces to me. And you have to dance in that area between positive and negative. And that must be really uncomfortable. Isn't that just honest living, right? It's honest living, but you know what? It's not always presented in writing because it's easy to... You're, we're, we're writers, you know. The easiest thing to write is a pan. The easiest piece of writing you can do is is something that's like, this sucks, this is horrible, I hate it. Second... Behind that is writing something that's celebratory. Like, this is awesome. I love it. The hardest stuff to write, even though it is the truth, is the stuff in the middle. 
the, I think that is such an embodied experience. And of course, I'm not trying to be exclusive here. You can have this experience in, in other bodies, in other experiences. But I think that um, that that pain and, and pleasure, that um, that oppression and that freedom are really they all come together, I think, in 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 the experience of being pregnant and giving birth. Um, and, and so it's the perfect it's the perfect way to kind of stay in that liminal space and say, this is bad. This is good. This is beautiful. This is disgusting. You know, this is how we find freedom. This our freedom is other people's oppression. Right. So um, and and I really struggled with writing it. There were times when um, like when I was writing about um, pain and like pain medicine, when I went into writing that chapter, I was fully expecting to be like, hell yes, pain medicine. It's great. Everybody get it. Let's all have epidurals right now. Let's just get them. But then I I started researching and reading the history of pain medicine and realizing how it has been used as a tool of freedom. You know, there was that whole idea of like, well, women should be in pain because of Eve and that's your curse. So bleed out on the table. We don't care. And pain medicine was a freedom from that of saying like, no, actually, I don't have to be, I don't have to live a life of pain. Uh, but it has also been used as a way to force hysterectomies on, you know, poor women, disabled women, um, women in prisons. And, and, and also the way that we've discovered pain medicine and a lot of life-saving techniques have come at the expense of Black women's bodies who did not consent you know, to having, uh, you know, like fistula experiments put on their bodies without pain medicine. So a lot of our freedom now uh, comes at this expense and it didn't have to and it doesn't have to. And in case people don't know, uh, what you're saying is borne out by lots of research that the U.S. has terrible infant mortality and maternal mortality rates for an industrialized country. The worst. Pro, there was a big pro. There was a big ProPublica research um, done a couple years ago, and a lot of that uh, forms, I think, the backbone of my book. What I kept thinking as I read your book was that pregnancy is a liminal state, and that. One of the problems in our thinking about it is the inability to acknowledge it as neither this nor that or this and that. It keeps getting split into mother and thing inside her, mother versus thing inside her. Yes, yes. And that I think um, that that was such an interesting revelation when I was reading about like the history of ultrasounds and how ultrasounds have been politicized. Because once again, you know, ultrasounds have saved lives. But the way ultrasounds have been used as to take that interior space and to externalize it and then exert political control over a fetus, which cannot survive 
outside of the mother. They're the same. And that's why I even talk about in the book, there's a fourth trimester, which is this kind of like newer concept, but it's really still part of pregnancy is that your baby is outside of you, but it's still very much a part of you. And this is not just like theoretical, like when you have a child, their cells get into you and your cells get into them. And that lasts for the rest of your life. Like even if you have a miscarriage, that baby's cells are still a part of your body. And science doesn't even know like what that means <laughs> for you, but it's there. And so it's it's still like, it's you can't separate the two. And yet all of our politics, all we do is cleave the two in part. And when we do that, we sacrifice one for the other and we shouldn't have to do that. And over and over again, it's the mother. It's always the mother who has to die. Or who or whose rights are taken away um, who, or whose um, life is governed by rules that don't have any basis in science. Stupidity seems to continually win the day. It's because of that split. And it's because of that split. It's not stupidity. Let's let's be let's be real clear. It's not stupidity. I mean, there's stupidity in the laws, but that's not why that law was passed. That is a very fair point. We keep excusing. This is this is a meta comment on America, but we keep excusing things with stupidity. And really, it's calculated evil. Lawmakers know like the the evangelical right knows they did not always think abortion was bad. Catholics didn't always think abortion was bad. This is a new policy that came about in the 1980s and 1970s as a calculated way to get political power and divide the nation. And basically all of conservative politics since the, since Roe v. Wade has been about this one single issue. Well, it's about preserving the blanket thing. It's about preserving patriarchy, white patriarchy. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and that's how you saw people or, you know, I saw people in my space and I will be like, well, I don't like Trump, but I'm going to vote for him anyway because of judges and we have to get rid of abortion. It's like, do we? If you really wanted to get rid of abortion, then you would just give women health care access. You give people, human beings, not just women, you'd give all human beings access to healthcare. And then guess what you would see? It's such like a linear, you can draw a straight line from birth control policies, access to healthcare, a decline in abortions. I want to jump in and continue to talk about that cleave between mother and child that occurs in pregnancy that's scientifically false <laughs> and ideological and and point out that it actually continues even in um, less literal, less extreme ways that we think about pregnancy. Um, like the way we judge mothers for what they eat or for how they take care of themselves. That that is that is also a a view that splits apart the mother and child and privileges the child over the mother. 
yes, we divide and it's like, oh, well, now that you're a mother, you know, you have to, you can't eat this or you can't do this or why, you know, oh, now that you're a mother, you're not a full human being. And, you know, I actually think that does a real disservice to children because then they just think everybody's life is theirs to dispose of, you know, at their whim. And it's like, sorry. And I also want to back up and point out that that this cultural narrowing of pregnant women's options specifically, uh, gain weight, don't gain weight, uh, exercise, don't exercise, all these things that are that are restrictive to pregnant women specifically, they perhaps can be seen as less extreme than the choice of, of whether or not to carry to term. But they have incredible emotional and psychological consequences that you you write about like that restrictions around eating is a really fascinating part of your book and it's it's it isn't quote unquote life or death i guess but it 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 it, it contributes to pain women have never been able to eat <laughs> Who doesn't love to eat? Food is amazing and I love it. But, you know, our whole lives, our intention between between just feeding and yourself and then, you know, how your body is supposed to look or not even how your body is, but like, are you even supposed to eat chips in public, you know, if you're not a certain weight or something? Um <sighs> just makes me so mad that we we do not allow women to eat freely and that if you and if you do you know it is policed in such a way and it becomes even more powerful in pregnancy because because it, and and I know a lot of other people experience this especially if you're termed quote unquote overweight that people really feel like they are entitled to say anything about what you eat in public all, women's bodies are policed all the time, all the time. And people who present as women, their bodies are policed all the time, all the time. But in pregnancy, because someone can see that you are pregnant or they think they can see that you're pregnant. Whole other problem. <laughs> it somehow becomes OK to have opinions and express them. Well, that's the other side of this, right? Like this whole time I've been like, and there's the negative side, but like you said, not everything's positive and negative. And, um, and, I, and I talk about that too. It's that people, I know women who have found power in their pregnancy, women who never felt like they could eat before now suddenly are saying, you know what? No, I actually need protein because I'm anemic and I have a baby in my body. So I'm going to eat this steak, you know, and that there is a power. Um, I think a lot about my former neighbor who I read about in the book with her permission, with her permission, but the, you know, how she had grown up in this very kind of confined uh, religious space. And then once she had children, she was able to advocate for herself as a mother. So she would say, no, I am the mother here. I don't want to do this. And then that became a real source of power and actually kind of self-radicalization. She doesn't go to church anymore. And it's been, it's, it's just been an incredible journey to watch her go on, um, 
and kind of have these parallel lives together. But it's, you know, but but it's also kind of sad, too, because women should have more cultural cash than just being mothers. And now a quick break to remind you of all the things you can consume if you want to. I'd like to welcome new sponsor Olipop to the show. Regular listeners know that I'm on the constant hunt for good non-alcoholic beverages, things that aren't too sweet or heavy on caffeine and that are good enough to savor rather than just suck down. So I am thrilled to have Olipop as a sponsor. Olipop is soda, but for grown-ups. It has the flavor profiles you might get nostalgic about, but it doesn't have any sugar or corn syrup or aspartame. There's vintage cola, classic root beer, orange squeeze, cherry vanilla, and strawberry vanilla. And let's say you're not a Frappuccino fan. Let's say you you drink regular Coke. It has 39 grams of sugar in it. Orange Fanta has 44 grams. The Olipop versions have less than six, and they taste better. Especially as the weather warms up, or you want to pretend it's warming up, and I'm speaking here of spring and not climate change, you're going to want to sip something that's cool and refreshing but won't, like, crank you up. Pour an ice-cold Olipop out, and you know you are skipping the sugar and getting, instead, stuff like probiotics and other botanicals that support digestive health. Again, we have worked out an exclusive deal for With Friends Like These podcast listeners. Receive 20% off plus free shipping on their best-selling variety pack. It's a great way to try all of the delicious flavors. Go to drinkolipop.com slash friends or use the code friends at checkout to claim this deal. That is D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P dot com slash friends. This discount is only valid for the variety pack. Olipop can also be found in over 3,000 stores across the country, including Whole Foods, Sprouts, Kroger's, Wegmans, and Erewhon. But you're going to want to order through the website because that's the only place you get the deal. And that is where you can get 100% money back if you don't love it. So go to drinkolipop.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout to claim this deal. That is D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P dot com slash friends. This episode of With Friends Like These is brought to you by Public Goods, your one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food, it's all the same brand in the same gorgeous, minimalist packaging. Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single-product brands, Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful streamlined aesthetic. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. And it may seem strange to really zero in on the packaging, but I've been going to a lot of open houses lately, and it's made me appreciate that calm you feel when your entire environment is in tune with yourself. Now, you're going to keep your ramen in the cabinet, but it is very cool to open the cabinet and see the same aesthetic there. And their ramen is really good. I'm also a big fan of their dish soap, which smells like how you want your house to look. They use a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. They plant one tree for every order placed and incorporate sustainability into every part of the company. Join hundreds of thousands of others who have already switched to their new everything store. And we have worked out an exclusive deal just for, with friends like these listeners, receive $15, that's $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. 
They are so confident you will absolutely love their product and come back again and again. They are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash friends or use the code friends at checkout. That is <clears throat> P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash friends to receive $15. That's $15 off your first order. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Back to Liz. You point out as well that the other kind of place where women are allowed to have agency and and demand what they want is in being a bride that and the continuity between these two things is when you're doing extreme performance of gender then you get to ask for what you want i i thought a lot about that how you know we look at a mother as a monster you know and and mothers demanding things and it is monstrous like some brides are awful. Some moms are terrible. When I worked at summer camps in St. Peter, Minnesota, parents were the worst. Like, they were monstrous. But, you know, once again, in these extreme performances of gender, it's where we find, you know, our absolute tyranny and absolute freedom, you know, to say, no, this is what I want. This is who I am. You know, in some ways, it was the power of being a mother that enabled me to finally ask for what I needed, you know, a career. I needed time to have a career. And this whole time, I thought somebody would just hand it to me if I worked hard enough. And then, you know, having that experience, I realized, no, this is something I have to take for myself. I, I have a very specific example to point out where... It is problematic but good um, about this, that power of motherhood, which is the mom's demand movement about gun control, which every time I see it as a person who is a non-mother, <laughs> I'm kind of like, I know you don't mean that, but it is such an interesting way to frame this entire debate. I um, We saw that in the Black Lives Matter protests out in Portland where the with the wall of moms. And, you know, and in, in, in some ways it was a really good thing because it brought attention to, oh, my God, look at what the police are doing. Nothing will still even do it to mothers. But then the point being is that mothers were out there the whole time, you know, so it's like, OK, it's great. Like, thank you for using your power to do that but also who's being erased in the process i really hate i really hate it when people are like and some mother you know like like it confers some sort of moral weight like i'm sorry you just like had a, i i've had two kids doesn't it's i'm actually not a better person let's 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 zoom in on the incarceration of of pregnant people actually I feel like I'm pretty knowledgeable about a lot of this stuff. This is a chapter and a lot of information that I had not known about. Because it is because I don't have to. Part of that is because I don't have to, right? 
which is the actual criminalization of motherhood. Like you're not speaking metaphorically. When a pregnant woman is incarcerated, what happens then? You can speak about that if you like, although it's very disturbing. And then also the ways that we've constructed a system that takes away children. From their poor mothers. They're poor mothers who are women of color. Um, so specifically with incarcerated mothers, you know, if they are, um, if they're pregnant while jailed, you know, the whole birth experience is horrible. Um, it, I mean, being shackled to the bed, being denied pain medicine, being denied somebody there to give you comfort and aid and help, um, you know, being denied necessary, like prenatal health care. And then you give birth and what you have a couple, a couple hours sometimes with your baby before it's taken away. Um, you know, in, in the, in the book, I have a story of a woman who, who refused to eat, just so she could have some extra time with her baby. And then her child is taken away, given away to someone else. And we have this like set of laws in many states where if a mother is away from her children for so long, then they get put into a state system. And so it's like, you don't even have a chance to be a mother. Because these laws that that judge... Uh, if you haven't been with your child, if the child has been in foster care for a certain amount of time, well, then clearly you're an unfit mother. So we're taking the child away permanently. Yes. And, and you know, and then there's, you know, and then there's also the way we criminalize poverty, too. You know, there's case after case after case of Black mothers having their children taken away from them because they let them sit at a park while they went in for a job interview. So I want to talk a little bit about non-mothers, female presenting non-mothers, uh, not just female presenting non-mothers, anyone who's not a mother who inhabits that female space. I confess, when I picked up the book, I was like, well, this will be an interesting sociological project for me. <laughs> You know, I, I will find out more about motherhood and that's good. And I am a feminist, so I really want to be educated on this stuff. And the realization I had was, no, this is not just a sociological investigation for a non-mother to read this and to think about motherhood. Because the ideal of motherhood resonates outward to encompass so many other kinds of oppression, basically, so many other kinds of um, systemic patriarchy, the ways that we are judged about, because you talked, there's only one, way, one right way to be a mother. There's only a few ways to be a woman. And, and it often includes motherhood. Well, I I find that the people who think about motherhood the most are the ones who choose choose or through life have made had that choice made for them. Um, about motherhood the most are the people who are not mothers, <laughs> um, because they're the ones who constantly have to answer for why why aren't you why aren't you you know and 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 I I do hope. I did try to grapple with that in the book a little bit that, you know, that when you are not in this space, it's it's something that is forced 
that you have to grapple with in almost a more honest way than somebody who's like, okay, I had a baby, did it, check, you know, um, uh, I don't know if it's more honest. It's just it's just one of the things that, again, kind of resonates outward. I think of it as, you know, throwing a stone into a pool or whatever, that my life is deeply affected by the ways we think about motherhood. You know, the questions I get asked, the choices that I have, some of which are, you know, this liminal space, like I have a lot of freedom, right? Because I don't have to raise a child. I admit that I'm not. <laughs> I'm not unaware, <laughs> but you know, the accusation of, of selfishness is something that is propelled by the way we think about motherhood. Oh yeah. Any, any, any woman presenting person who takes time for themselves, whether that is through not having a child or you do have a child and then you choose to take time for yourself. It's always selfishness that that investment in self or that focus on self is like, oh my God, how dare you? As if the whole purpose of our lives is to go out and bleed for someone else. Like the goal of my life is not misery. Now, popping in to let you know about our sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them and let them know where you heard about them. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Stamps.com. One thing we learned in 2020, the sheer amount of stuff you can do online. Groceries, happy hours, doctor's visits, create a musical, plan a protest. So you may already know that you can go to the post office online. Stamps.com allows businesses to do all their mailing and shipping right from their computer. No need to leave your office or your home or your home office. Stamps.com has saved small businesses all over the country thousands of hours and tons of money. And now you can too. With Stamps.com, you get the services of the post office and UPS right on your computer, plus big discounts on mailing and shipping rates. I mailed Christmas presents with Stamps.com. I've mailed merch with Stamps.com. I've returned some of the stuff I bought online with Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Post Office and UPS right to your computer wherever you are. Stamps.com is a must-have for any business. Whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller shipping out orders, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off of every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder over 900,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. So make 2021 the year you stop wasting time at the post office and start going to stamps.com instead. There is no risk. And with my promo code FRIENDS, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in FRIENDS. That's stamps.com, promo code FRIENDS, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. As I've gotten older, there are some things I've become less sensitive about. My feelings don't get hurt as much. I don't take things so personally. But I've also gotten more sensitive. 
mainly to sugar and caffeine. I can have some, but not a lot. So I choose carefully. Like, when I drink coffee, I have to make it really count. And that is where Super Coffee comes in. It adds healthy fats and proteins to help cut jitters caused by caffeine, and it is sweetened without sugar. It has 10 grams of protein, zero added sugars. You like your mochaccinos or your fraps, the ones with 50 or 60 grams of sugar? Super Coffee can give you the same satisfaction, the same feeling of a midday treat, but without the caffeine or sugar crash three hours later. Super Coffee was founded by three brothers, Jordan, Jake, and Jim Jachico. They pitched their idea on Shark Tank, and I am told they have many celebrity investors, including Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers. I looked this up, and not only is it true, but he has a very podcast-driven portfolio, including former sponsors Hims, Mack Weldon, and Nom Nom Pet Food. I hope that means he listens to podcasts. Hi, Aaron. Big fan. We've worked out an exclusive deal for with friends like these listeners with Super Coffee. Receive 25% off plus free shipping on any of their best-selling variety packs. This is a great way to try all their delicious flavors. If you don't like it, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. Go to drinksupercoffee.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-S-U-P-E-R-C-O-F-F-E-E dot com slash friends. Super Coffee is also available nationwide in over 25,000 stores like Target, Whole Foods, Walmart, Kroger, and CVS. That's it for ads. Back to the show. Liz, do people express opinions uh, about you as a mother in public? Is that something that you've ever experienced? (laughs) what no never absolutely never what's actually more interesting to me is when people erase my motherhood um like from the narrative when um this has happened actually in the past year uh being well for a time I was a local columnist and you know when I would criticize lawmakers you know it'd be like well how how dare you talk about this mother I'm like I'm a mother or you know or this actually happened a lot with when I wrote about Amy Coney Barrett weaponizing her motherhood and there was this whole thing where there was this like institutionalized Catholic response to like look at these liberals criticizing motherhood how dare they it's I'm a mother I'm not I I lo- and I and I love being a mother, but it's it's yes, oh yes. I mean, people do criticize it. I do really try hard. I keep my kids' names out of public. I keep their faces out of public. Um, you know, I, and and um, and and to the extent that I can do that as much as possible. Um, but it, yes, people have, um, but you know, it's interesting to me when it is erased from the narrative. And I often think that that is because now I am a single mother. And so, and you know, the experience of writing this book was really hard because I sold the book as a married white upper middle-class mother of a boy and a girl. I did it. I accomplished it. High five to me. And then uh, when I sat down to write the book, I was very broke, very in debt, um, single mother. And, 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 and my circumstances had completely changed. And, you know, I remember telling somebody, like, I'm going to buy my way out of this book contract because I cannot write the book that I said I was going to write. And um, it, 
my friend Matthew Celestis, he's an incredible writer. Everybody read all his books. Um, he's coming out with a craft book this year. And, um, but he, you know, he was like, write it into the book. Like that's the dissonance, right? That's, you have to write that into the book. Um, and so I did it to the best of my abilities, but yeah, it's, you know, it's the experience of going from like idealized motherhood, which was terrible to, you know, this other kind of dissonant motherhood space, which is awesome. And I love it. So I want to get a little more personal, but I feel uncomfortable asking the question, although one of the reasons I'm asking it is because I know for a fact that other people must ask you this because you're a mother in public, which is, so why did you become a mom anyway? Um, you know, that's such an interesting question, and I am glad you asked it. I, You know, there's, um, I will just say, like, as a blanket, there's a lot of questions people don't feel like they should ask women, and I think that that is, those are interesting. I like to hear those debates. No, and I think it's a great question. Um, That is something I really struggled with because when I got married, I'll just, let's get honest. Like, let's get real honest. I'm number two of eight children, um, raised evangelical. And I, when, and and a lot of family trauma, a lot of, uh, you know, um, I love my parents. We have a good relationship. But growing up in a household with two bipolar people meant that I was stepping on eggshells all the time. And I did not want to replicate that experience for my children. I did not want to have children if that's what their life was going to be like. And um, But I got married to a person who really wanted to have children. And in hindsight, you know, it would not have been a great idea. And... Um, but the end result is here and we're happy. But the, um, you know, and I really struggled with that. You know, I was like, I will, you know, I was like, Max, I'll have two kids, ideally one. I don't know if I can do any of that. And I, I sent myself to therapy for years. I held off having children for years until I could finally say to myself, I think think I've, you know, like I've healed or at least I'm in a place where I can work on myself as a human being to raise another human being. And, um, you know, it was really difficult. I, um, again, I was married to somebody who really wanted children. Um, I'm not saying I didn't choose it, but I think the choice came a little sooner than would have if I'd been, you know, with somebody a little bit more, um, you know, uh, open to waiting a little longer. But I remember holding my baby, my first baby, my daughter, and just being scared out of my mind, like just having her. And it was like a really kind of traumatic birth. Um, and then just holding her and then just being like, how to, this is the scariest thing I've ever done. Cause now I have to raise this human in a world that is really scary and will hurt her. You know, it's gonna hurt her. I'm sorry. <laughs> But like, you know, and then I was like, why did I do this? Why did I bring, why did I bring two perfect human beings into a world that is just going to hurt them eventually? And um, I don't know. That's something I still think about a lot. And I think that that's the struggle. I'm so happy I had them. They are the best. Um, I love them. And I love that the world gets to have them. Um, that I think is maybe the redemption. And it's the thing I tell my friends too, you know, when they're like, I want to have kids, but I'm scared. I'll be like, the world's going to be so lucky to have those people in this place. And, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. There's not great answers, 
but I am glad I did it. I love motherhood. Yeah. I think you gave the answer. I really do. I, I think you gave the answer is that you have provided a source of joy to the world and you have created beings who will be joyful. There is, you know, net joy like, and discovery and invention and change that is not possible unless, you know, there's new people in the world. Like, <laughs> the world really will not change. If we just stop. And I think there's great arguments where people are like, oh, children are just going to like be a drain on the world's resources. And it's like, OK, I get it. I mean, growing up, one of eight kids, I had a lot of people being like, why do your mom have so many kids just ruining the environment? And it's just was like, guys, this is not a hypothetical. These are human lives who are here and who exist. And human life will exist whether, you know, people choose to have kids or not. And people's choices are there choices? And you can answer this question in whatever kind of frame of mind you wish. But I, I am, and I'm curious about, however, whatever the answer is, which is actually going back to the pandemic. You finished this book, obviously, long before the time of quarantine, the time of no school, the time of not being able to see your friends' children, as you referenced earlier. An enormous impact on everyone. Yes, let's say everyone, but mothers in this moment. Oh gosh. Um, you know, this has comprised the bulk of my writing, I think, for pandemic. Um, that this is, you know, this is a time where all the crises that we've built up with the lack of childcare, the lack of maternity leave, the lack of healthcare, the lack of a fair and working wage um, for all people has culminated in a huge crisis for mothers, where we are seeing the fact that like where we relied on mothers for free labor and free labor in so many ways, because not just the free labor of like, now you've birthed the tax base, right? Like, let's just be as, you know, critical as possible. But like, you know, if women don't give birth, you don't have anybody tax, so you can't build your stupid roads. Like, so let's just like be honest. Like you don't have anybody to work at your Amazon warehouses. So... Um, so this is like a critical part of the economy, but it's one we don't invest in and one we refuse to bail out. And then it's also free labor, not just through, you know, the birthing, but in who watches children. It is the frontline workers who are the lowest paid and the ones who are suffering the most. So so we've now it's kind of culminated into this crisis moment where the, the government answer to these problems is we'll just figure it out. And women are dropping out of the workforce. A recent study that just came out a couple days ago showed that while men and white women have made job gains, it is women of color who have not been able to come back from this pandemic. And the by the way, pandemic's still happening, but it's incredible to see who is benefiting and who is losing. And it is always compounded and by who we rely on for the free unpaid labor of our society that makes our society work. 
Yes, that segues very nicely to another question I wanted to ask you, which is you you write in the book about the the way that um, w- women were more able to be controlled when we cleaved work and home and funneled women into the home. Hey, I don't know if you noticed, but that cleavage <laughs> has been erased again. We are now in a place where work and home are the same. So what do you, what do you, well, okay. Yes. What do you think? Cause I was, when I was reading that part in the book, I was like, oh shit, you know, yes, we separated work and home in order to make women do all the unpaid labor. Basically I'm vastly shorthanding history here, but now what's happening. But now women are, it's, it's actually compounding the problem. You would think that it would have erased the problem, but you know, I, I, I have a friend who uh, used to work for a university um, and she used to, because her job required her to forget like she's working out of the home and her job is like, and she's like, I need flexible hours. I'm trying to homeschool my kid. And, you know, my husband's a frontline worker, all this kind of stuff. And they're like, deal with it. And she can't. Uh, it's impossible. And so she had the luxury of being able to say, okay, I choose not to do this anymore. But, um, it, it, you know, and that's, I hear over and over again, companies, maybe for a time, they were like a little understanding, but now the, it is just this like, thing where it's like, we'll just get your work done because this dude over here can. Well, he can because his wife is in the other room keeping the kids quiet, you know? And so I I actually think it's kind of made it worse where you would think that like merging work and home would kind of erase some of these, um, you know, false binaries that we have. But really, it's just kind of compounded the problem because we don't have a society that that sees all people as complicated people. Honestly, you know, if we had bosses who saw fathers as fathers and said, okay, here's, you know, like, um, you know, here's a more flexible work week. So not just my female employees can take care of their kids, but so my male employees can take care of their kids. And I've been thinking about this a lot. I mean, we're talking, I've been thinking about this a lot through a pandemic is, you know, we really do not have a society that allows dads to be dads. Just a thought I had on this, which is that although we have seemingly collapsed work and home again, I think the problems that you're talking about have to do with our inability to uh, find that gray area in our thinking about work and home. Yeah, yes. And that's the way, like, that's why binaries are so oppressive in every aspect. Sexuality, our conceptions of politics, um, and everything. Binaries are bad and uh, inherently, inherently, inherently oppressive. And whenever you divide things into two and only two, that's when you see the biggest problems. And we're talking specifically about home versus work. And yes, like we have been like, oh, well, you're either at work or you're either at home and you can only do one or the other. And the reality is 
that once again, people are full, complicated human beings. And sometimes, often, you know, a fullness of self is a fullness of all things. And also, but like, also, I just hate that because I was getting ready to be like, oh, they're a better worker. What the hell? Like somebody's whole like identity is and value is based upon whether they can like make money for a company or themselves. Again, it's disgusting, but um, that's kind of where we are. Um, but we, let's talk about it because I do think it provides an opportunity. Do I believe that coming out of this pandemic, all of a sudden we're going to be like, hell yeah, let's do healthcare, let's do childcare, free universal preschool, everybody gets it. No, I don't think that, but it gives us a really great way to fight for it. And I also am a person who believes I don't like cynicism. I think that if you want, this is our fight. Liz, thank you so much for coming back to the show. I love talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. And that is it for the show. Again, Liz's book is Belabored, A Vindication of the Rights of Pregnant Women, but you should check out her first book and the conversation we had about it, Godland, A Story of Faith, Loss, and Renewal in Middle America. This show is a production of Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino, and Liam McMahon writes the tweets on my feed that actually have information in them. Whitney Pastrek gives me hope for a better world. And I would like to remind you that the only New Year's resolution you should care about is the one about doing things that give you joy. Take care of yourselves. Is it just me, or is it getting really hard to figure out the best way to save for retirement? Fidelity can help you find clarity so you can save the best way for you. With a free personalized plan, goal tracking, and timely insights, you'll be set to take on retirement your way. Get started at fidelity.com slash future. Expenses charged by your investments and other costs and fees associated with trading or transacting in your account apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.